Every experience is a learning experience, including LSD. There's no such thing as a flashback, Danny. You need to get a job so that you can curb this free-form anxiety of yours. WCBN FM Ann Alba. It's Freeform! 88.3 on your toaster! Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me, Nicholas Butler is here with his latest novel, your second novel, right? Right, Nick? Second novel, yep. The Hearts of Men. Um, Just out with... Echo. Yeah. Um, just came out Collins. officially yesterday, I think. Yeah. Yesterday was the the launch date. So yeah. this is uh, <laughs> hot off the press. <laughs> this isn't probably that funny, but you actually had to buy a copy of the book when you came into town. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's a book that's uh, about the Boy Scouts and the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. And I came to town with like no for a reading tonight for a at reading with not, with not lacking my own book lacking <laughs> a pen um it was kind of a uh, scary flight because we've been experiencing these, <laughs> these the gusts cra- of wind these it's crazy a... winds and um and the winds were really bad in milwaukee they had to shut down highway 94 in and out of milwaukee because like a 18 wheeler blew over um, oh, so it was a little hairy getting off the runway in Milwaukee, but then landing, I mean, when you're looking forward, you know, through the en- entirety of the plane and you're, you're watching, you know, you're watching it just wobble around. It's like, Oh God, are we even going to make it? But I, I figured the upside was Cranky. my, I was hoping my, you traveled yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah. But I was, I was thinking like the upside would be my book sales might improve if I, there was like a fiery crash or something, but terrible oh, no yeah oh well <laughs> but you're you're here i'm, here. Now. You're I'm here a now. living writer <laughs> you are still qualifying for the program still kicking Nicholas Butler. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be reading tonight at literati at yes. seven o'clock so shortly yeah. after this program yeah and you'll be heading to the bookstore and yeah where there's many copies of the hearts of men um yeah, and I'm really excited. I mean, liter- you're, uh, Ann Arbor's super lucky to have that bookstore. It's yeah. a beautiful bookstore. It's well curated, great 
staff and they do all the little things just right. And, um, you know, I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a town of about 65,000 people. We don't have an indie bookstore. So when I, I come to a great bookstore like that, I'm just like, oh, I wish we had this. So were you here for your last book tour then? I was here for Shotgun Love Songs back in, I guess that was 2014. Mm-hmm. And I had a really, really nice reading. And, um, you know, it was my first book. Nobody really knew who I was. And so it was really heartening to look out and see some warm bodies in the crowd. And it was in the, the basement at that point, <laughs> yeah. right? The reading? Yeah. I think you'll be upstairs tonight. That's I think what they told me. <laughs> yeah. And they were sort of like apologizing for the creakiness of the floor above the basement. And I was oh, like, I, I don't remember that at all. I, I knew no better. I mean, Well, plus yeah. there's also added ambiance. But sure now right. you'll be able to look out over right. from the second floor so that and have maybe well I'm anyway excited. so hopefully if people listening you can um you can drive towards literati now and and see nick butler in person and and get a copy of the hearts of men and um and and before also let's see before i read your bio um nick we were we were talking before uh we came on air about today being a day without women and uh, this right. this being and here and here we here we are right <laughs> and and the title of the book is the hearts of men right <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. oh. No. you know, but, and how you had called like your your um, publicist to even yeah. talk about an NPR well, thing in, that's going on tonight. Yeah. So you have actually been thinking this yeah. through a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, um, you know, my wife and I, and my even my seven year old son who followed the election like from its earliest primary stages, he knew all the Republican nominees. He followed the whole thing. Um, And throughout Hillary was his candidate. And so, you know, my wife and I were, were sort of um, disappointed for sure uh, at the election results, but to see like a seven and a half year old boy um, just kind of be crushed, like to wake him up to go to school in the morning. And he was not expecting the results that I handed him. So, you know, thinking about Hillary Clinton on this day and um, thinking about all the female writers that, um, you know, that I admire and that have impacted my writing. and Like Marilyn you, Robinson? Well, Marilyn Robinson, for sure. Louise Erdrich, Annie Pruel. I mean, there's those are kind of the top three. But, um, you know, I felt a little I feel a little sheepish. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I don't. Uh, well, they I'm such a great host that I pointed out, but no, I just thought it would be nice for us to talk about. And thanks so much for, um, just because you had said that earlier, I just thought it was, um, kind of good, good for us. We're all thinking about it. And, um, Anyway, and some of us were wearing a lot of red today. <laughs> right. And yeah, you have very, very red pants on, which is, it's, uh, I look through my garment bag and I also have, like, I have the matching dude pants, which I almost wore, but that would have been, that would have either been like the greatest photo op in the history or, or it's, sort of embarrassing for both of us. I'm next not sure. book. Not embarrassing okay. at all. Okay. Next book. Nick. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, um, The Hearts of Men is the novel on the table um, just out, just out yesterday. And so we're catching you at the beginning of the book tour. Um, Nicholas Butler was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and raised in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He is a graduate of University of Wisconsin Madison, as well as the Iowa Writers Workshop, and the author of the internationally best selling and prize-winning novel Shotgun Love Songs and the acclaimed short story collection Beneath the Bonfire. 
Along the way, he has worked as a Burger King maintenance man, a tutor, a telemarketer, a hot dog vendor, an innkeeper twice, an office manager, a coffee roaster, a liquor store clerk, and an author escort. His itinerant work includes potato harvester, grape picker, and Christmas tree axe man. He lives on 16 acres of land in rural Wisconsin, adjacent to a buffalo farm. He is married and has two children and will shortly be going on a road trip to Florida. That's true. <laughs> All of that is true. All of that is true. Um, so I took part of the, the bio, obviously, from the back of your new book, The Hearts of Men, but also from your website mm-hmm. um, that people can go and check out. Um, I hope you don't mind, but when I was reading that, I thought, oh, you've writer's jobs. You've had writer's mm. jobs. Yeah. Well, I never really thought of them as writer's jobs when I was in them. I just thought like it was this series of somewhat dead-end jobs. Uh, you know, I, I graduated from honors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but I never had any luck finding kind of like a normal person job to the point where I wondered if I'd misspelled my name on my resume or put the wrong phone number down or something like that. And um, or not used enough like active verbs or something I don't, in the, I, I in the don't, resume. I don't know what it was, but uh, you know, I mean, I think generations before before us, it was okay to sort of take a lot of weird jobs and kind of figure out who you were as a person. And now I feel like young people in America are kind of forced into a career sooner and sooner, and they have to take everything so seriously and. I, I do feel sort of uh, blessed or fortunate to have kind of drifted around and tried a lot of different weird stuff on before I really found my footing in the world. So when did you decide to go to the Iowa workshop then? Well, it's really more like when Iowa decided that they would like like me to come. I mean, I, I, there was probably a part of my personality that would have liked to have gone at age 23, but I, I wasn't, I didn't have the chops. So um, really what happened was that um, when I think when I was 28, my wife became pregnant with our first son and I was working at a liquor store making eight bucks an hour and I just sort of had a conversation with myself about what I wanted for my future and for my family and I took inventory of the things that I thought I might be good at and the only thing I could really come up with was writing. So I started taking workshops with uh, friends to try and get better. And I applied to grad school one year, got totally rejected every, every by everybody that I applied to. And then I applied the following year and got, got into Iowa. And that was kind of, you know, the big break in my career. And so over that, like in the intervening year then, mm-hmm. Nick, was yeah. it something where you just kept writing and, yeah. and meeting with writing groups or, or yeah. how did you... Yeah. So I was part of a writing group, um, in Madison, and uh, all all the people in that writing group are people that I'm I'm still in contact with, still friends with. Uh, two of the women in the group went on to publish books, um, so that certainly helped out. I give a lot of credit to Dean Bacopoulos, who's a oh, University yeah. of Michigan guy. And um, his sister is a friend of the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, Dean and I worked together at a place called Canterbury Books in Madison. And so another one of the great bookstores. Yes. Yeah. And um, he was kind of the first writer that I I ever like had. I mean, I was meeting writers all the time because of the bookstore, but he was the first one that I sort of knew intimately. And I I looked up to him and and tried to figure out how he'd done it. And then he, he offered a workshop and I took it. 
And that really helped out a lot. He just, um, you know, pushed me in the right direction, mostly gave me positive encouragement. So. Well, thank you, Dean. Thank you, Dean Copolis. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you say that mostly gave me positive encouragement, that seemed kind of mysterious. Like what we (laughs) rather than like, like, are you thinking rather than being? Yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I don't teach very much. You know, I had to teach to get my funding to go through Iowa. And then last fall I taught at the University of Wisconsin one class just to kind of like see if I could still teach and kind of update my resume and stuff like that. But otherwise I haven't had much luck getting teaching jobs. But I do like in my my personal philosophy of teaching is that it's really hard to sort of teach creativity or to teach somebody to become a much better writer. But as a teacher, like the really the best thing that you can do is encourage everyone, but really encourage the best of the writers and just tell them that they're on the right track and tell them what books they need to read to sort of, you know, energize themselves and, and teach themselves something. And I think the best teachers just kind of get out of your way. You know, they just let you know what's working and largely get out of your way. And so that's also what you're that's going to be your motto, it seems. Yeah, like. yeah. I mean, as I said, I haven't had a whole lot of vocational success in terms of normal people jobs. But <laughs> well, well uh, okay. Well, let's talk about all the success you you are having with publishing your books. Um, and and it's not, okay because I know we're going to go to break soon. But so this, the Hearts of Men, which mm-hmm. is your second novel, yep. um, was out in France before here and yeah. has already started winning. Uh, awards over there, the prizes. Yeah, it, well, in, in fairness, it got it got shortlisted for some ma- like the major foreign literary prize. I didn't w- I didn't win anything. I wish I did. That would have been great. But I was really honored to be um, put on these shortlists where, um, you know, truly like the greatest. You're in some pretty amazing company in terms of global writers, but also American writers, um, like Jim Harrison, for example. Jim Harrison, who's one of my heroes yeah let's talk about him a little bit later but so why was this out in france before here they were just really excited about it they you know i mean my books do really really well in france i think they had a hole in their autumn publishing schedule and they like they wanted to publish it then and we said well are you sure you don't want to wait till after american publication they said no let's do it and it worked they knew what they needed to do. So, so do you go over to Paris, for example, and read at the Shakespeare Book Company? I've never been. You... I've never been invited to Shakespeare and Company, but I, I go to a, quite a few book festivals there and and read at those. So, yeah. and do you do you have a translator, or do you just I go do. with the English? Or... Well, <laughs> I do have a translator for. It's the same translator for all my books. Her name's Mire, and we're good friends. And so sometimes she'll translate for me at festivals. But, you know, most Europeans are just, you know, light years ahead of us in terms of language and maybe civility, all sorts of things. So, yeah. They they know what I'm saying in English. I think a lot of the time. Right, right. So okay, well let's um I'll tell you what. Let's take a short break. Then when we come back, um we'll we'll talk about the hearts of men. Um and then perhaps hear part of it. Sure. Um and thanks Nick also for picking the songs for today's show. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, okay, we'll be back. We'll take a short break. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel today. Nicholas Butler is here. The Hearts of Men, his latest novel, and we've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back.
Well, welcome back. Screw me. We're, Let's listen to that all day long. We're, we're not. <laughs> well, Nick, um, well, you've got living writers, everyone. We're back. Um, we were listening. Thanks for picking the songs. Yeah. Nick, tell us. And today on the program, Nicholas Butler is here with his novel, The Hearts of Men. What, what about this song? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not sure that I pronounced the gentleman's name right. I think it's Michael Kiwanuka. I think that's his name. Is that right? Anyway, that album, Love and Hate... <sighs> just i mean oh my god it's just it's perfect and uh it it reminded me of like discovering marvin gay when i was a 16 year old like white kid living in eau claire wisconsin you know and understand like coming to sort of political realizations that weren't immediately around me and this album is very much like that it's so it's really sweet and it's tender, but there's some heartbreaking moments where I think he's talking about, um, you know, just be, being like a, a young black man. Um, so it's an amazing album. And and um, I can tell everybody that you were really enjoying hearing it over the headphones. Yeah. Too. Like... Well, this whole experience of being in this basement reminds me of my teenage bedroom which was also in a basement with like thick carpeting and then i was like super into music at the time and i would listen in headphones and there's really nothing better and i'd never heard that song through headphones it's so warm and perfect and um i feel really emotional about that that man's art so i started to get kind of like uh worked up oh yeah <laughs> well wcbn always feel free to come come here nick whenever yeah. you're in town careful like, you ask for like is your basement crashed on the couch <laughs> some people do yeah <laughs> people do. um well okay well so this the some of the themes of the song are also um very present and and connect to the hearts of men um your novel um before us um are like the protagonist we meet um nelson he's 13 years old he's mm -hmm. a bugler at a boy scout camp um and there's there's heartbreak ahead. Um, I don't know. But how did this how did this one? Because it's set in Wisconsin. Yeah. Also, um, so you're writing about maybe we can talk about place, like sure. how this place is really alive through this novel. And yeah. and I hear from your your first novel yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, look when I when I was at Iowa. For one thing, I was really homesick for Wisconsin. I wanted to, my wife and I were, my wife and son were living in north of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and I was commuting down to Iowa City every Monday and then commuting back. And I had kind of a crappy living situation. I had these, uh, which is like another whole long story. But anyway, like my whole two years at Iowa, I was not particularly happy. And I really wanted to be, find a way to move back to Eau Claire. And so I think a lot about shotgun love songs was homesickness and, um, you know, the music of Bon Iver, uh, played a part of that. Um, Justin Vernon and I went to the same high school. So of course his music reminds me of where I'm from. It reminds me of my pride for Wisconsin. All just to say, like when you're writing your first novel, you'd have to be kind of a jerk to think it's going to be published, right? Like the, the odds of publishing a book are not good. So I just wrote whatever I wanted to. And I mostly, I wrote about Wisconsin and I just thought, well, that's just what I'm going to, I'm just going to do and, you know, see what happens. And then it got published and I thought, holy crap, like, 
all right, well, it seems to be working, you know, and uh, and I don't really care to write about anywhere else. At you know, I mean, it's just where I'm from, and I'm really proud of it, and I think it's as interesting as any other part of the planet you know uh, it's funny people will say like why do you write about wisconsin and, and you think like nobody ever asked the who new york city that? yeah like, who said that who, oh, who are these people when you, especially like we were talking about my books being in france well um i love paris but a, a parisian will often ask me why do you write about wisconsin and i think well nobody would ever say why do you write about paris <laughs> you know um and that might seem like sort of a funny comparison, but if you value the natural world more than you value concrete and big buildings, it was a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Why would you ask me that question? Yeah. <laughs> so. And and so it was. So it wasn't someone like a like a writing teacher who said, "Write what you know," because that's also something that sometimes people will say. Yeah, yeah. You that's don't a... have to set it somewhere like in Los Angeles if you've right. never been there. Yeah, um, yeah. It is what I know, so of course I can kind of visualize everything really well. And I believe in sensuality in writing. I believe you should, you know, your reader should be able to smell and hear, taste everything. So that that helps out. I know what the landscape is on a sensual level. Mm. Um, this book, The Hearts of Men, travels further than I've ever traveled in a book i mean it's out in botswana and south africa it's in vietnam um did how did you do research for this i had been to south africa and botswana so um i i knew about those landscapes and some of the like a little bit of the politics of those countries i knew nothing about viet i've never been to vietnam i should say i don't know anything but uh I had a neighbor that I was close friends with who fought in Vietnam. And so I never asked him questions, but I certainly listened to all his stories. And he was able to talk about some of the stories. Cause yeah. Nelson, I never asked him, like, I'm sure he had um, stories that were darker than what he told me. But I didn't ask him those questions. I just listened to what he wanted to talk about. So Was it some of the character then based on, like, Nelson's experiences, like, in the... Well, tunnels, no, um, the tunnel rat thing, I think that's just kind of a childhood fascination of mine. I remember being a kid and my dad was a Vietnam era guy. He'd served in the reserves kind of towards the tail end of the Vietnam conflict. And so he was, we were always watching. I mean, I probably watched Platoon for the first time at like a shockingly young age. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah, I remember, I still remember yeah. yeah, and I remember like, there was a popular TV show for a while called Tour of Duty. Um, it was on network TV, but we always watched that together, my dad and I. And um, and when you hear about the role of a tunnel rat, it's sort of horrifying. I mean, what could possibly be worse than crawling into a dark, narrow tunnel to potentially kill another person? So, yeah. So... So this, so Nelson, your character is mm. a, is a Boy Scout, yep. an Eagle Scout, mm -hmm. and so you have experience with the Boy Scouts yep. in Wisconsin. Yep, I was in scouting from like you know the age of seven to seventeen. I, I'm an Eagle Scout. Um, 
So the book came out nationally officially yesterday, but the day before that we had a kind of a pre-publication party thing in Eau Claire, and I broke out my old Boy Scout uniform, which I'm proud to say still fits, though snugly. And so I wore that <laughs> so to the... So very hipster-like at yeah. this point. <laughs> I don't think there's much hipster about me. Like, you can't see that through the radio, but I don't, I don't feel that way. I just feel like kind of a aging dad. Don't pretend but... like you're not wearing your Boy Scout <laughs> yeah. uniform yeah. right now. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I've got my sash on, my tight olive green shorts. The badges. Yeah, my badges. Uh, no, um, I don't know where the, where the hell was it. Oh, oh, you were at the soiree, so you did. Yeah, have yeah. The so I did wear my uniform. Yeah. So Boy Scouts was a huge component of my childhood, and going to camp was something that I did every summer at least once. Uh, sometimes I think for weeks on end, and then I also did winter camp at this same place. Wow, winter camp. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like that. I've not heard of that, but that sounds like it could be like an up north, like a Wisconsin kind of. I'm sure the. Maybe the, Michigan know, has I'm it sure too. Boy Scouts in Michigan are doing it too. I, to me, it's like um, not really the most rewarding camping. I mean, it's cold, so you sort of like build your fire and you cook your dinner and then you quickly retreat to your sleeping bag and uh, and then kind of peel out as quick as you can in the morning. So. That's not quite as much fun to me. So how did the, what's the origin story for the hearts of men? Well, I think the origin story, it's, it, it, there's a couple different stories here. There's one is coming to, uh, the novel Lord of the Flies kind of later in my life, reading that novel and being just devastated, uh, and I think partly because when I you have say a, later in life, like when yeah, do you mean? I think I read that like three, four years ago. Okay. Yeah, but I think in America, most people read Lord of the Flies between the ages of, say, 12 and 16, like middle school to high school. And maybe not again, and it would be a different experience to read it. Yeah, and so part of the thing was reading it now as a dad of a young boy and imagining him as part of that cast of characters. Um, So there's sort of those two things. There was a birthday party that we threw for my son, which has similarities to opening pages in this book where... You know, it was his first birthday party where he invited a lot of boys. And there's this anxious time if you have children, you know, before a birthday when you think, oh, my God, is anybody going to come? And what am I going to tell my child if no one comes to his birthday party? And so that sort of helped helped me imagine some of the early pages and really imagine who Nelson was as a character. Because, in fact, really uh, no one comes to his party except one kid who comes late. And, and leaves quite soon. And leaves quite soon. Yeah. Yeah. But he brought a nice gift. Yes. <laughs> but it is, it's yeah. already, I would say, like, I, I think The Hearts of Men is not a book to have by your night table necessarily because the prose pulls you through. So it's mm. not one that you can kind of go to sleep to. Mm, I love to hear that. Um, <laughs> Good. Did you hear that, radio audience? <laughs> It's a page turner. It is. A compulsive page turner. It is, but it's sad. <laughs> Don't say that. It's the happiest book you've read in decades. <laughs> it's a little bit sad. <laughs> and it's quite and it's also like it's cuz it's um the structure. You you have it in four four parts, although yeah. the fourth part is is super short. Is that right. something you've worked with before, this idea of the structure? No. Or why, yeah, not, why did it happen for this one? Was it the moving across so much time? Well, or? I think the honest answer to that question is I'm 37 years old. This is the third book that I've written. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure everything out. So it just this 
Yeah, moving through time, I saw it taking place in three big chunks, and um, and it's kind of as simple as that. So, because so that's part of this this origin story, the 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 Boy Scouts, the Lord of the Flies. Yeah, and then you kind of had this sense of who Nelson was going to be, um, and it required this. Yeah, well, tough part chunks. of the project was you know Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts brownies 4-h all these sort of kind of antiquated um childhood societies that we have are all trying to impart a kind of a moral code of conduct a kind of morality so the part of the project of the book was like starting off with these kids as they're learning that code of conduct but then tracing them over the course of their life to see how they keep to that code and is it hokey to have a code is it possible to have a code in America in 2017? So that was something, that was a question that was inspired, fueling this book. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let's take a short break and then maybe we'll come back to talk about the code and hear, hear a bit of the book. Um, sure. Today on Living Writers, Nicholas Butler is here. His novel, The Hearts of Men. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today, Nicholas Butler is here um, in person, in the studio, um, with his novel, The Hearts of Men, before he heads to Literati um, to do a reading. And um, also, like, do you, do you talk with the audience? Because Oh, yeah. Well, on your website, you write this lovely, the, the landing page of the website yeah. is a letter that you wrote just earlier this month. Yeah. Like, I guess a couple of days ago, yeah. really. <laughs> At least right. that's the... I hadn't really freshened up the website in like about a year. Um, and so I realized that maybe I should I should do that. But um, yeah, I mean, like I'm not on most social media platforms. I'm on Facebook because I was on Facebook before everything happened. But um, 
I don't know. Like I'm still, I still write handwritten letters to a lot of friends. Um, and I still really value like conversations like this. This is what I like. I don't, I don't really get a lot of the social media platforms. And frankly, I think we, everybody can agree that, you know, they are helpful in ways they can help people organize. They can help report the news that is, that's meaningful. But the other really scary thing that's happening is that it breaks down how we talk to one another and how we empathize with one another and how quick we are to form these tribes against one another. And I don't really care to participate in that, you know? Um, so these book tours are kind of like my chance, you know, um, to connect with readers to and connect to talk with, readers. with people. Yeah. And part of like being, you know, I think part of being a writer is a little bit like, you know, I'm hoping that people think like, oh, he seems like a nice guy. Like he's the kind of guy I want to cheer for, you know, when I was just starting off and, uh, and trying to figure out like how to be a writer when I was working at the Canterbury and meeting, you know, like Colson Whitehead as a young man oh, or friend of the show, you know, yeah. Dave Eggers or something like that. I was like, man, these guys are really cool. Like I never would have told them that because I was like, <laughs> but they were, you so, were also cool because <laughs> well, they were just like, they were like, so they were very nice and chilled out and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and then you meet somebody, you have a nice experience like that and you think, okay, I'm in, like, I want to buy all their books now. And so, yeah. And kind of see what their imaginative world is like, like mm -hmm. take a chance on that and yeah. their stories that they want to tell. Well, you know, and the other thing is like, this is like, this is the career that I want to have for the next 30, 40 years. So the weird thing is, you know, my books aren't all the same and some books are going to touch people differently. And you kind of have to hope that your readers are willing to, to come along for the ride. You know, and they're going to like, you know, we were talking about Jim Harrison. I love Jim Harrison. He means a ton to me. Some of his books definitely mean more to me than other books. What so, are your, what are your, like, uh, well, was it The Road Home? Um, that Legends of the Fall, which is, of course, a classic. I mean, I remember the first time I read A Good Day to Die and thought, well, what the, what is this? You know, um, I love almost all of his poetry in some ways I feel yes. like his poetry is kind of aged better than some of his fiction. Um, the beast God forgot to invent. Um, you know, there's the, the guy wrote like 30 novels, so it's hard to keep them all straight, but, um, so yeah. when did you start reading Jim Harrison? Well, I think and it was, how did you find him? It was probably about the, that, you know, the Canterbury time because mm -hmm. Dean was working there and, uh, Jeremiah, his, uh, who, I think was here in, in now in Michigan too. His brother? His brother in law? I think yeah, his brother. His yeah. brother in law, right. Was yeah. there at the yeah, Canterbury. He's a friend um, of the show too. <laughs> and yeah, Jeremy Chamberlain. That's his right. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Who actually gave me some early writing advice. Um so like he's, those guys He's would... in um Bulgaria now on a Fulbright. Lucky. I know. Good for him. Yeah. Cool. Well, <laughs> but he um, gave you some advice early. Well, on. you know, they'd have the staff picks there and Jim Harrison was always on the staff picks and so mm. You know, that's the great thing about indie bookstores is that, you know, you have friends with these people that work at the bookstore and and they lead you in the right direction. And then all of a sudden you can just kind of run with those writers and, you know, you get in Jim Harrison, you've got 30, 40 books to read now. Right, so. right. And so then he becomes like sort of almost a, a character in your own life, like in your own imaginative writer's life. Well, he did. There was, you know, I mean, Jim Harrison's a he's 
he's passed now, but he was a legend. He there's good aspects of his personality, and I think it's fair to say there's bad, bad aspects of his personality. I'm not heroicizing the whole thing, right. but but he um, is one of the writers that did build a myth around him. Yeah, right, and that was important to him. Yeah, he and was also big in France. Right, yes, Huge. right, yeah, he for sure. Um, the thing that was important to me about Jim is that he lived in rural parts of America, mm-hmm. and he didn't really compromise that ever. And he didn't apologize for it. And, I mean, I remember reading some of his books where he would mention place names of, uh, you know, small towns in the UP or northern Wisconsin. I was like, oh, my – see, we exist. Yeah. We're here. This guy knows about us, you yeah. know. And um, that's a very important thing. Like, we yeah. exist. We're right. named in literature. Yeah, it's very – it's a really powerful thing. Um, and it's a small detail, but you realize when, like, as I'm touring – and, you know, I mentioned some some town of like 1,100 people, but for those folks in that town, it's kind of amazing. You know, it's just a little gesture on my part. It's not a big deal. But, uh, yeah, and so Jim's work really meant a lot to me that way, you know. And so did you get a chance to go to one of his readings while he was alive and I meet did. him? And, or was he at the Canterbury? Or? I don't remember him ever coming to the Canterbury. I do remember that he did a reading in Milwaukee. My best friend and I drove from Madison to Milwaukee to go see him, and we were sitting in the back of the room. And then it's one of the only times in my life where I felt like another, like I'm not very like particularly new agey, but I, I felt like I knew that somebody's presence was near me and i actually thought it was a buffalo or a like but it was like, jim harrison but it was jim harrison <laughs> i turned down. over and there was this wide man and he kind of had his like he always wore the same the leather kind of vest vest <laughs> with it like the construction like uh jack like a yeah jacket you'd wear if you were like the construction manager on the side or something and he got up, you know, he kind of ambled up to the microphone and you couldn't understand anything that he was saying because he has like a thick UP accent and perhaps he'd had a drink or two. Um, Some bourbon. Yeah. But it was it's, amazing. It's also part of the myth. We're yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. Did he talk about his eye? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I knew I knew about the eye, of course, but which was, you know, when I brought my stack, I very earnestly brought a stack of his books for him to sign. And then you're looking down at your hero and one eye is sort of right. way <laughs> off. But um, but it was amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. I had a chance to meet him at Hugo House out in Seattle and okay. he wanted me to comb his hair before he went. He was he's quite a oh, laugh riot. He's very funny. I was helping him with how he he looked before he went on stage which is also very jim harrison yes it is yeah um yeah so but thanks for talking about him because i think it's interesting to also know like who becomes important to you like who Mm. are people in your 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 the constellation of writers who are your people that's a really nice way to put it that's an awesome way to put it constellation of writers yeah um well, Jim Galvin, whose poem is taken, uh, part of his poem is taken uh, toward, for the beginning of this book, was a very important writer for me even before I came to Iowa where he teaches. Um, James Allen McPherson, who was one of my te- teachers at Iowa, became, you know, his writing is not only important to me, but his spirit as a human being informs the way that I try to live my life. Um, Marilyn, of course, um, Louise Erdrich, you know, um, writing also about kind of our part of the world, you know, um, 
the you know the early times I read Annie Proulx, broke back mountain for the first time and just was devastated and um, artistically envious of everything that was happening. And so when you're writing, because your your prose is you can have like very very long and lyrical lines and mm-hmm. they're very short, um, emphatic. Um, how much of the composition of that is happening as you're just in early drafts or do you, in your process, do you go back and look at the language or how? Yeah. Um, I I don't know that I could tell you that I'm consciously thinking about sentence structure as it's coming up. It's something that I've sort of taken from Per Pedersen, the, I think, believe Norwegian writer who wrote Out Stealing Horses. He has a beautiful sentence structure and rhythm to his writing. And I don't believe in writing long sentences just to write long sentences, nor do I believe in just writing short, clippy sentences to do that. But I think there's a really nice rhythm that happens when you can toggle the two. And I think a reader can appreciate artistically what's happening in a long sentence, but then it's sort of like a cool sip of water when they get a short sentence. So, And so... um when you were drafting the hearts of men did you did you um did you have like post-it notes or did you have a map or what were some of the writing tools or that you use uh well like i told you before like i don't really know what i'm doing so i don't i don't have an office i don't have any maps i don't have post-it notes i just uh basically i have deadlines and that's kind of what i respond to is that but do you Make them for yourself? Well, I mean, it's kind of like you sign a book contract and then, you know, these checks come on sort of a schedule until they don't come anymore. And then, you know, that's my only job. So I have to kind of keep writing (laughs) to to make it. Right, right. Yeah. So they're all kind of... You know, I mean, you might have a contractual deadline, but it's really the stuff that I just build for myself. But what about the first book? Because you didn't, was that yeah. more you you had the deadline of the accountability of the, the Iowa program or like? Well, it really, it was the accountability of, you know, my wife basically becoming a single mom during the two years that I was at the MFA. And I just thought, if I don't come out of this with an amazing book, what were we doing? What was she doing? Why was I spending time away from my, at that time, one-year-old son? So there was a huge amount of pressure, self-imposed pressure to get it right and to do it really well. And um, I didn't waste any time at Iowa. You know, when other kids were um, probably having a better time socializing, I don't mean that in a critical way. Like, I didn't have a lot of friends at Iowa. I had, like, four good friends. Um, But most of it was just writing. Well, that's what you were there for. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like also talking with people, the, the professors or the writers that were there. Yeah. And just, it sounds like absorbing everything. It was amazing. Well, you know, and I came to it a little bit later. You know, I was a student at 30 rather than a student at 22 or 23, which I think made a difference. So, yeah, for well, me, it made a difference for me. It, You know, everybody's different. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. Okay. And then we'll finally hear some of the hearts of men. I'm okay with just talking. I don't need to read. (laughs) I love talking with you, Nick. I love talking with you. Today, Nicholas Butler is here. His novel, The Hearts of Men. You've got living writers. We'll be back. Hey, 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Nicholas Butler is here, The Hearts of Men, his latest novel, Out with Echo. Um, and many thanks to Sonia for sending a copy of the book along. Um, uh, so, Nick, before we start talking, yeah. would you read? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, because there's so many fragmented small chapters, and because, you know, it's happening over so much time, I'm just going to start from page one. Um, the bugler needs no alarm. In the musty close canvas darkness, his smallish hands fumble for the matchbox, scratch the blue sulfurous tip against the box, the match catching and burning, and finally the golden kerosene glow of the lantern, the wick burning like a lung on fire. He yawns, rubs the sleep from his eyes. In this new light he seeks and finds his glasses and now can make out the familiar particularities of his tent, its shadows, his things... An owl hoots from the crown of a nearby maple as the boy flaps open the tent and shivers in the pre-dawn cold. His bare feet move lightly over the well-trod camp soil. He tugs his white underwear down and, trembling, sends an arc of piss onto the big accepting fronds of the unseen ferns. It is a pleasant sound, like rainwater bouncing off a canvas awning. Then back into the tent, now that much warmer for the flame of the Coleman. It is a race until dawn. The youngest in his troop of some thirty boys, Nelson, sleeps alone. His possessions are neatly organized into piles. Socks, underwear, shorts, books. Shirts and trousers hang from a line that he has erected to follow the tent's central pole. Mornings he is glad of the tent's solitude, but at nights the campsite and forest are alive with the low murmuring and high giggling of boys in their nocturnal conversations. This reminds him of his loneliness. It is the fifth summer he has visited Camp Chippewa and the second time he has had a tent to himself. Sometimes he creeps out around midnight to watch the kabuki theater of the other boys' flashlights, hear the pages of comic books turning and the plastic crinkling of candy wrappers, smell their contraband cigarettes. His father half-heartedly volunteered to bunk with him, but both parent and son recognized in this gesture something ultimately embarrassing. No... It was better for Nelson to be on his own. Perhaps at some point in the week he might gain a roommate, some other young scout badly homesick or alienated by his peers and in need of refuge. Some boy who'd accidentally wet his sleeping bag. Nelson would be ready. Ready to consolidate his belongings to one side of the tent as necessary. Ready to assemble another cot. Ready to be helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, cheerful. Thanks, Nick. Thanks mm -hmm. for reading. My pleasure. Um, so when you were an Eagle Scout, or were you the bugler? No, I have no musical aptitude at all. Just enjoy, but enjoying it. I love music, enjoy. yeah. My dad used to joke that I can't play, a piano, uh, can't play a radio, can't turn a radio on. I don't know. I That's... must have butchered that one. <laughs> I know. I feel like there was a joke well, in now... there, but I didn't get it right. Now... <laughs> well... Look, your dad can see you now. You're on yeah. the radio. There, everyone's yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. Fun. I can't. I can't play music at all. And I never. I was like in the choir in middle school, but I I wasn't. I was embarrassed to sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's also that sounds like a great yeah. short story. Probably Wait, is that in your first collection? No, <laughs> no. It maybe it should have been. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but well, so already, so in these opening notes of the 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 novel yeah we're already kind of deep into like this place and character like using mm. place to show who the character is yeah um 
yeah so is that something like how because i guess the places it seems so like you said um earlier in the program um sensuality and writing mm. is something you value yeah well i mean like thinking about um the beginning of brokeback mountain for example um enos del mar is in his trailer and you can hear the sand blowing with the wind against the side of his trailer and he's he's peeing into the sink and he's thinking about his partner and it's just the emotional the emotion of what he's thinking about is heavy enough but the isolation of his spot and and the weather and how all that is affecting his his thought process was informative to me as a young writer i mean i wish i i would if i live my whole life i'll never be able to write a scene that's that powerful and um but annie pruel does that like effortlessly all the time i mean um the shipping news is a great example i mean that book is just that one creeps up on you too. It's a masterpiece. That isn't it's like one that you think is so quiet and then it's mm -hmm. devastating. It's very devastating. It's also funny at times. It's yeah. kind of strange. It's um there's some horrific things that kind of happen early on that then just sort of get moved past or move yeah. So So there are elements of these like how what you're valuing in mm -hmm. these other stories that have um, meant a lot to you. Obviously, it can, yeah. we can hear, we can, um, uh, like, that's elements that also, then you're willing to go there in the storytelling that you're doing, too. Yeah. Well, and that's also just, uh, like I said, I think earlier, I mean, I'm very proud to come from Wisconsin. It's what, you know, I live in the same place where I grew up. And um, so I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> you know, kind of write postcards from home, you know, trying to get people to, to see what I see and, and uh, love what I love. So. So what about that, the driving question to like this idea of like a moral code or a compass? Yeah. Um, and exploring that through the story, through the novel. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about writing this book was that the, uh, what it, what the 2016 presidential primaries was happening during, you know, because the primary season is so long now, that really began in earnest in 2015, right? Mm -hmm. Deep into 2015. Right. And I had no idea how the primary season was going to work out on either end. But what was unnerving to me is that, especially on the Republican side, and I don't mean this in a partisan way, but they, there were 16 people standing on the stage and there were there was there were times where it was very much like lord of the rings it became grown men insulting each other in ways that little boys insult each other when really the most important things are on the line healthcare <laughs> nuclear warfare the environment all these sorts of things and one of the candidates is talking about his penis size on the stage right and I started thinking, like, what is, what is going on? Like, even if you don't like Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney is a statesperson. He's not going to embarrass anyone, I don't really think, or John McCain for that matter. I don't agree with most of their politics, but I respect facets of how they conduct their business. And that was gone. I mean, it was just gone in this thing. And... So I started to think but, about... And like, how can that happen with it being... Because like you said, there were many people yes, on a stage. Right. So it wasn't... It wasn't just one person. It, it was, 
you know, as multiple personalities engaging in this is Chris Christie and Marco Rubio and poor Jeb Bush who got beat up. I mean, um, Carly Figarino, who was, um, who was, you know, he basically insinuated that she was uh, not attractive and therefore somehow not fit for the job. Uh, and, you know, so I was just thinking about like, a code of conduct, a moral compass, a kind of ethics. How is it the, the things that we're teaching our children at a young age? What happens when you start breaking promises as, as an adult? And where is the code then? You know, when people get a divorce, um, clearly the people who get the divorce aren't bad people because half the people in America get a divorce. So we can't just say half our population has failed or half our population is bad. But the interesting thing to me is when you're trying to teach your child that promises matter, that they should take care of their mom, that they should respect their mom, and then you as a man get divorced from that mom. What is the message that you're sending your kid, you know, and how do you, what's happened to that kid's code of conduct after, in the aftermath of something like that? And so for yours, do you think, it sounds like from talking with you that, I mean, in the book, it seems like part of your code of conduct, your values were kind of shaped in the, in the, like in the scouts, but also in your family and... Well, yeah, there are two. So there's two things happening. There's one thing is that um, my dad was kind of like an old school libertarian. He was like pro gun, pro gay, pro abortion rights, but like stay out of my bedroom and I don't believe in big government, all that stuff, like true libertarian. And so he really had me in scouts from the standpoint of he didn't believe in the government. And he felt like at some point the whole thing was going to fall apart and so he wanted me he, to be prepared. Yeah, you have to be – you could be self-sufficient. You right. could tie a knot and live on the land. And also more than that, it was that if you look at the earliest history of scouting, um, Franklin Roosevelt was one of the fathers of scouting. And the early um, the early leaders of it looked as at it as America's knighthood. They truly believed that they were grooming people to become – politicians and business leaders with a code like knights did good knights did a lot of bad stuff but (laughs) you know what i'm saying and so there's this thing happening where my dad was kind of grooming me in this sort of moral way and then when i was 16 i discovered that my dad was not everything that he had sort of led me to believe that he was And there was a pivotal moment in my life, very much like what happens in the second act of this book, where my world just sort of collapsed and everything that I thought was true was blown apart. So, Did you have a a friend like Nelson, the character? No, I did not. I was just... But it would have helped. It would have helped to have a Nelson in the room, but it was just me. Yeah. So... So part of this, this feeling and these ideas and what you want for the future, mm-hmm. all of this sounds like it's this fuel that's been, that takes like, is what drives this book, The Hearts of Men. Yeah, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, like, I think my books are are, are earnest, you know, I'm not really interested in being like ironic I'm never going to be the hippest person in the room, but I really believe um, in like trying to strike an emotional chord with readers. And, you know, one of the kind of, I don't know, motifs of this book is the notion of light and fire. And when I was a boy, it was not, you know, um, 
that wasn't a hokey thing to think about like passing your light on to other people, you know, that there would be like a generational light in humans. And um, so it is important to me. And I'm also, you know, I live in rural Wisconsin. I care very much about the natural world and I'm looking at my world and thinking mm -hmm. we need people to start having a code towards the environment. We need people to start making tough decisions. We need people to start putting their foots down and saying, saying this is enough, you know, and, and in that way, morality or a kind of code of ethics is not hokey. It's like absolutely what we need, you know? Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Thanks for talking yeah. today. And thanks for having me. Um, come back anytime or call. Sure. You can give us a call. We'll do a living writers via phone. Um, but thank, thank you so much. Yeah. And, um, and you're going, you're heading to literati right now, yeah. uh, seven o'clock, a, a reading Come on um, out from the hearts of men, uh, the latest novel by Nicholas Butler. Um, you've been listening to living writers, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm T Hetzel until next time. Production Studio A in downtown Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM.
extended funky beat intro for today on the Daily Sports Board. You're listening to the DSR on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Jeremy Parks. On the other side of the glass, we've got Austin 